All right, and let me introduce tonight's speaker. Martha Saxton is an assistant professor of history and women's and gender studies at Amherst College. She's the author of several books, including Louisa May Alcott, A Modern Biography, and the book we will be hearing about tonight. And she lives in New York City. So now I'm going to turn it over to you, Martha. Oh, I think you're still muted. Okay. Thank you, Sarah. And thank all of you who've tuned in. It's really wonderful to be part of this program about which I knew nothing until I was invited to speak. Um, my goal is to try and right some of the wrongs that have been done to Mary Ball Washington by historians of her son. And in this way, to give Mary Washington the past that she deserves that is both accurate and honorable. The first thing that strikes anybody looking at uh, the historiography about uh, Mary Ball Washington is the uh, kind of insane uh, range of opinions about her uh, from angelic and devout to greedy, slovenly, unloving. Uh, and the second thing that you notice almost as soon as you start to try and find out what's behind these stories is that there's very, very little hard information about her. Um, and that's, of course, what has uh, partly accounted for the many versions of Mary Washington that exist. The earliest versions of, of Mary were pious and saintly and self-sacrificing to fit with the historiographic portraits of her son, the, sorry, the hagiographic portraits of her son. They also matched the contemporary ideals uh, for mothers in the post-revolutionary period when the country needed its mothers to model and to teach virtue at home. Uh, there were no few established schools, uh, no established church to do take on this kind of work. And uh, women were the ones who were supposed to create moral citizens for the new republic. Um, this was a safe and not altogether wrong portrait of Mary. She was pious. She did sacrifice sometimes. Um, and it's fitting for the historical era if it is also uh, some of the versions of it were full of errors. After the Civil War, two Southern women writers portrayed Mary as an evangelical Christian who was a slave owner. And this is defensible in the sense that she was on the evangelical wing of, of Anglicanism. I, wouldn't, I don't think she would have thought of, of herself as an evangelical, but she uh, was extremely devout. Um, they portray her as a very kind slave owner, almost an abolitionist. Uh, this was a fabrication, uh, but like the pious portrait, it had its roots in a kind of a historical use utility. It was supposed to show a woman who could unite North and Southern, Northern and Southern white women across the fractures of the recent civil war. At the end of the 19th century, in a period of very high immigration and the presence of more than 4 million newly freed men and women, George's biographers praised Mary very, very much for her English heritage. They credited her with passing on to her son the, the traits of command and combativeness that allegedly were part of her white Anglo-Saxon background. Here was another positive view. This one uh, based on bogus racist thinking, um, but also historically specific to the moment because of anxiety about the ethnic makeup of the nation at, the, at a time of great change. In the new century, Mary's reputation began to slide from positive and inaccurate to nasty and inaccurate. 
this too had 20th century historical pressures on it. The advent of psychological thinking suggested that character was strongly influenced by parents, that it didn't come fully formed. It had been in a 19th century, 18th and 19th century idea that character was something innate and you were, you were simply born with it. And um, it was good if parents could nurture it, uh, nurture a good character, but parents were not thought to have all that much to say, uh, to say about it. Um, the heightened focus on childhood um, brought especially critical attention to motherhood. Um, at the same time, the backlash against women's suffrage activity and the growth of higher education for women effectively revoked the 19th century halo that mothers had enjoyed as angels in the home in the 19th century. So Mary sort of lost, lost any halo effect that she might've had as she moves into the new century and becomes the focus of a, a, a critical assessment of her mothering. Uh, there were, um, Washington's biographers began writing about Mary's illiteracy, her habit of smoking, her cruel and demanding behavior toward her slaves, her slovenly housekeeping, her personal dress, uh, uh, sloppy personal dress and, and greed. And perhaps worst of all, they accused her of hostility to George's military aspirations coupled with a desire to control him and keep him by her side, keep him always helping her out um, and solving her problems. Since the early 20th century, some version of evil controlling Mary has persisted, most recently in Ron Chernow's otherwise very readable biography of George. For the record, as, she, as we shall see, she was not illiterate. She was not slovenly. She was not a smoker. She was not greedy. She was a cruel slave owner. It was built into the institution, but she did not differ from other slave owners, although writers suggest she was uniquely brutal. Um, as I was reading Chernow's work on Washington, I thought that one of the reasons the myth of the evil Mary persists is it, it makes such a neat and satisfying story. George's first and most important obstacle is his bad mother, whom he has to overcome like the dragon and then go on to found the country. The tell, uh, this telling of the story um, gave the country a father without the messy complication of having a real mother, just a kind of a cartoon. But very few of George's biographers have been able to consider what it meant for George to have a mother who was in many very significant ways, very much like him. Most of what has been claimed about her is wrong or exaggerated and provides no context for her life. She's been simply a prop in a story about George. In what follows, I'll touch on some of the milestones in her development that offer some background and some alternative views on some of the criticisms that have been leveled at her. This is not to say that she um, cannot be criticized or that she was mellow, sweet-natured, you know, um, perfect, perfect mother and granny. Uh, she could be prickly, very high-tempered, and, and relentless when she was certain about what she believed, like her son. But before judging her, we should understand what we can about her life according to her own lights, not just as George's satellite. Starting from her earliest years, Mary suffered loss after loss of those closest to her. Around 1702, her father, an elderly widow who owned considerable land and a number of enslaved people, married her mother, who appears to have been, uh, to have come over from England as an indentured servant. 
Mary's mother was clearly an extraordinarily competent and active woman. She was a good horsewoman. She became a friend to a, a number of powerful local men. And if she couldn't read, she somehow managed, she may have been able to read. Um, <clears throat> she doesn't seem to have been able to write, um, but she did manage to witness documents making her mark, making her X. So she was um, astute and could understand legal documents. Mary's father died when the girl was three, leaving her two parcels of land and three young enslaved boys. Her mother married again, and three, three years or so later, that husband, Mary's stepfather, died. Mary's mother became head of her farming household of three children, two from an earlier marriage, <clears throat> and grew tobacco and other crops with the work of a few slaves for the next six years of Mary's life. Mary's mother used the courts to sue for debts and kept her family independent, that is largely out of debt, a real achievement for a small farmer in Virginia. From her start as an indentured servant to her maturity as a productive property owning farmer, the kind who, except for her sex, would be Jefferson's ideal citizen, the yeoman farmer, the yo woman farmer, uh, or land owning farmer. Uh, she must have been a mythically powerful figure in Mary's imagination. She died when Mary's about 12, as did Mary's other half brother, uh, Mary's half brother. So this was a, a double blow, leaving her only one half sister in, in the way of family left. Now parentless and numbed from repeated losses, the girl lived with her newly married half sister, Elizabeth, her husband and their infant. By the time Mary was 16, she was managing her sister's household and she displayed precocious competence, frugality and vigilance as a manager. Far from illiterate, she also acquired the first of her small library of devotional um, books, Companions to Her Solitude, which she read and reread. She practically memorized these books. They furnished her mind. These volumes elaborated Anglican beliefs, putting them in domestic and personal settings. Mary studied to patiently accept her trials and her losses and to try to be a good steward of those people and things in her care. She read to be taught to be led on the path of finding contentment through acceptance of loss and hardship. She tried to learn resignation to her losses, not to have her imagination stirred with romantic tales and hopes of rescued heroes who would rescue her. Unlike wealthier leisured girls, Mary did not read novels or acquire that dramatic vocabulary of sensibility the way her daughter Betty would and the way George's wife Martha did. Um, her education was not decorative, but it was extremely useful. Like her mother, she was a very good horsewoman. She loved horses. She was also a skilled middlewoman, a good dancer, and as we, we have seen, an experienced and careful household manager. Too, Mary met her husband-to-be through a neighbor and an old friend of her mother's, George Eskridge, who was a rich lawyer, a member of the House of Burgesses, um, owned a, a large amount of land and a large number of slaves. He was also uh, a, a close friend and um, vaguely, vaguely related to uh, Augustine Washington. Washington, about a decade older than Mary, was an ambitious and restless man who had just lost his wife and had three motherless children and a plantation that needed a mistress. He also had part ownership of an ironworks. 
One parcel of the land that Mary's father had left her was close by Augustine's uh, forge. This was a practical more than a romantic marriage. Both partners needed the other, what the other could offer. And they had a close and trusted facilitator to their union. Like her mother before her and her children after, Mary married up. She took good care of Augustine's property, looked after his young daughter until she died and welcomed his sons home from English boarding school when they returned shortly after uh, the wedding. She bore six living children, one of whom a little girl died as a toddler. Of her five children, she was closest probably to her eldest child, George, her second, Elizabeth, and her fourth, John Augustine. The parents probably named George after George Eskridge, although George did have an antecedent way back named George. Um, in any case, Eskridge would have been gratified whether or not he was sharing the, the honor. Um, Mary named Elizabeth after her beloved stepsister who had sheltered her after her mother. After more than a decade of marriage in 1743, Augustine died very suddenly, leaving Mary with five children under the age of 11. At this time, they were living on the Rappahannock River at the what they called the ferry farm because it was where the ferry crossed uh, the river to town, to, to Fredericksburg. Augustine had been working hard on the land that would be Mount Vernon, destined for his oldest son, Lawrence. Uh, Augustine's will was very ungenerous to Mary, leaving her about what she had come to the marriage with, less, um, and pitting her against her children if she wanted any of the land or enslaved people that were destined for them. He left Mary with little to no income on the most worn out of the family farms, which despite its infertility, she was to give up to George on his majority and build herself another house. Similarly, Augustine left Betty, his daughter, a small amount of cash and the promise of an enslaved woman, unlike the substantial property intended for her brothers. Augustine's older children took their large shares of the family property, the best plantations, numerous enslaved men and women, and the ironworks and set up on their own. George remembered those years as the poorest of his life. One night he could not go to a party because he didn't have the corn to feed his horse. The first written entry in his account book, a lifelong project for this careful record keeper. The first entry was to pay back his, about paying back his mother for dancing lessons, which he had borrowed because he felt he must have them to enter uh, the sociable um, elite circles that he intended to, to participate in. Mary has been criticized as both a poor farm manager and a cruelly demanding slave owner. As to her management, when Washington later took over the farm from his mother, he couldn't make a profit either after many improvements. As to slavery, if you owned slaves, you had to be harsh to make people behave like slaves. It's not a natural way to behave. And if you were a woman slave owner, you had to be fiercely demanding to establish this is in no way to defend the institution or Mary, just to explain the sexism of the criticism. There is no reason not to believe that she or any other slave owner, uh, 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 there's no reason, uh, 
you, you must believe that she and all slave owners could be cruel, won't do it in the negative. So could her son. Unlike her son, but like so many slave owners of the period, Mary unapologetically owned slaves all her life and in her will recklessly divided people up without regard to their family ties. George, as you know, change of heart over time about slavery. Mary scraped educations together for her sons and daughters. George went to local schools instead of the English boarding school he uh, would have attended. He taught himself. Martha, so, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I think there might be some interference on your microphone. We're hearing a rustling sound. Those might be the pages I'm turning. Perhaps. Oh, okay. I will move them off the. Thank uh, you. Away from the from the microphone. Let's see. Thank you. See if this improves. Mary scraped educations together for her sons and daughters. George went to local schools instead of English board, the, the English boarding school that he would have attended. He taught himself surveying with his father's instruments um, and began earning cash, unlike his brother, something I think no one of his brothers ever did. Mary dressed her children well using her prodigious needlework talent. She bought wigs for her sons and made sure her children all mastered the rituals of tea a requirement for mingling in polite society. George famously read, and it's kind of poignant that he read a self-help book to polish himself. But Mary also kept the house stocked with English periodicals and novels that offered lessons on sociability and proper behavior. She tried to help her children have access to elite social circles. That's what all of this was about. Her stepson's uh, both married very wealthy and well-connected women, and they helped Mary in these efforts with her own brood. Historians have blamed Mary for being a stern disciplinarian. Disciplinarian she certainly was, particularly demanding obedience for, from her young. Virginians had a name for the training that was to be both modest and um, uh, helpful, but also active and energetic. It was called bending the will against itself. And it was a sort of a, kids were trained to um, be very, at once both very restrained in their manners and, and very courteous, but also just below the surface was a kind of an aggression, which was also encouraged. And I, th I think this was something, I mean, Mary certainly uh, would have had this in mind when she was raising her raising her boys particularly. Mary was not part of the elite vanguard that was softening traditional, uh, uh, traditionally rigorous child rearing practices. She'd grown up in precarious circumstances herself and was what her son described as respectable, but certainly not the leisure elite where these changes and softening of uh, childhood were, were happening. Um, she practiced extensive mothering, uh, or trying to make sure everyone was healthy, fed, dressed, and dutiful. Like most 18th century mothers, she did not understand her parental role as developing the intense, protective, emotional relationships with her children that mothers have been expected to do since the 19th century. That was not in her purview or in her, her own upbringing, although it was beginning to come on the scene as a style of parenting. Her children grew up observing the Anglican rituals, knowing how to behave correctly, and ready for entry into the adult gentry world. 
Mary has been criticized for not remarrying, which would have theoretically taken responsibility for, for her from George's shoulders. Um, apart from the fact that it's an odd idea to remarry to please one's son, Augustine's will threatened her with loss of her children if a second husband tampered with their um, financial, with their legacies, a common enough occurrence at the time. Augustine's own guardians had gone to court over his inheritance. Mary's mother had specifically provided uh, a little fund of, for legal help for her daughter to protect her pieces of property and the enslaved boys that her father had left her. And Mary had the example of her mother's staunch independence as a widow. Her mother made her own decisions, raised her children as she saw fit, determined her own activities, stopped having children, and controlled her property, all because she was a widow, not a wife. Whatever Mary's thinking about this, she chose to remain single. She's been much criticized for opposing George's predilection for the military. Historians have assumed that she wanted him to stay home and, and look after her interests. Uh, it is quite true that she did not like the military life. Having listened to Lawrence, her, her stepson's, the, the um, um, Augustine's eldest boy, having listened to his letters from when he was in the army in the Caribbean, um, the letters were terrifying, particularly on the subject of not so much the violence and killing, but the killing of disease and the numbers of men who died um, in that climate on those ships. Um, his own fatal consumption is something he may have contracted there. Uh, she begged George, after, after Augustine died, Lawrence thought it would be just great for George to go into the British Navy at 14. Um, and he had a bunch of uh, friends of, of Augustine's and his who were, uh, took George's side and persuaded him to keep this a secret from his mother and that this was a great idea and he was all ready to go. And Mary begged with him not to do it. And he decided not to, his own account of this is not that she forced him not to, but that she, he acceded to her wish. Um, given the high mortality, particularly of very young men and, and boys in the Navy, it's endemic violence and dangers. It's hard to find fault with her decision, although George's historians have largely seen it as proof of her controlling and overprotective nature. Later, she did not wish him to fight with General Braddock in his ill-fated campaign in 1755. This time, George didn't listen to her, being an ambitious, driven young man. Uh, but his biographers saw his independence and manhood at peril in this disagreement. Um, but like a good son, not a cowed one, he discussed the matter with her. He tried to assuage her fears. He offered to give her Mount Vernon to live in while, while he was gone. And she stayed during much of his absence, living with Johnny Augustine, uh, the, her fourth child, and his young wife, whom she assisted in childbirth. In other words, George could say no to his mother, but he respected her worries. Now, this is not the portrait that you get of this Harridan uh, going, one uh, Pulitzer Prize winner had her going to Mount Vernon and getting to the door and stamping her foot. There's no evidence that she did anything like that. Years later, um, uh, George's wife, Martha, didn't want him to take on leadership of the Continental Army. George used the same disingenuous arguments he'd used with his mother about 20 years before in leading the Virginia militia. 
He said the command was thrust on him and there was nothing he could do as an honorable man but serve. Uh, of course, he worked hard to get both those assignments. The myth of Martha as the happily sacrificing Roman wife sending her man off to war is as untrue as the myth of Mary's demonic power over George and her supposed desire to emasculate him. There's no evidence backing up the accusation that Mary wanted George to stay at home and looked after her affairs. He was a Washington family patriarch. She had raised him for that, um, not to risk and probably waste his life fighting. A major and perhaps the major grievance of George's biographers uh, was occasioned by Mary's need for money. Uh, in a world where George cannot have any flaws, this conflict has been extremely vexing for biographers because if Mary did need money, George looked pretty bad being so wealthy and such a skinflint. The solution had to be that she couldn't need money. But it's quite clear from the records that I studied, she often did need money. She would ask him for six, eight, 10, sometimes 20 pounds in the years after his marriage to Martha. And increasingly he found it irksome. He knew that all Virginia planters were cash poor. He had been himself before marrying the richest woman in Virginia. Mary was twice indicted for selling poor quality tobacco. She was exonerated both times, but she was a marginal farmer on marginal land at the ferry farm and always short of cash. Her requests bothered him more and more because they came, uh, they started coming just at the time that he himself was slipping thousands of pounds into debt. His wife Martha's wealth had opened up deep new sources of credit for him and he was using them lavishly. He worried about his debts, but felt he was in a cycle that he could not extract himself from. He wanted his neighbors to think he was wealthy. Uh, his neighbors wanted him to think they were wealthy and they continued to buy more and more things to show each other how wealthy they were and they couldn't step aside from this. He felt they couldn't step aside from this cycle. He lent his profligate brothers hundreds of pounds, uh, four or 500 pounds to buy a, a coach, uh, British made uh, carriage, money that he never saw again. But the much smaller request from his mother annoyed him no end. The issue was not financial, but psychological, which is something his biographers have not been uh, eager to accept. When George went to war, he'd hoped he'd taken all farming responsibilities from Mary and that she would never again have to ask him for money because she was not gonna be growing crops for the market. He would decide on her allowance, but that was not her desire. He bought her the house that she chose in Fredericksburg. She moved off the ferry farm um, it was within walking distance of her daughter Betty's house. It was a, a place that she liked very, very much, but she still owned the two pieces of property her father had given her 70 years earlier. And an enslaved man would drive her out to her fields wearing a straw hat regularly so that she supervised the enslaved workers and overseer on her land as the revolution went on. She endured the war's terrible years of inflation, shortages, high taxes, no salt, no corn, you name it. Everybody in Virginia suffered, almost everybody in Virginia suffered from it. And so did she. Meanwhile, her overseer took advantage of her age and sex and cheated her for years. At the end of the war, she complained to George about this, but he wouldn't take her word for it and sent his brother Johnny to investigate who confirmed it. His biographers have ignored this. 
At the end of the war, Mary's circumstances were extremely precarious, like those of the majority of Virginians. At the end of the war, something occurred that George's biographers distorted with great enthusiasm in their desire to paint Mary as the wicked witch. When the British were coming north at the end of the revolution, the Americans thought that they would come to Fredericksburg because Betty's husband, uh, Fielding Lewis, had mounted and was running a, uh, an arms manu a, a, a manufacturing place for arms. They uh, simply assumed that as the British came, came north from their ex escapades in the south that they would want to uh, get rid of that, uh, of Fredericksburg and the knot of patriots that were there. Uh, and at the advice of Lafayette and some others, the Washington family fled into the mountains. Mary, her daughter Betty, and her son-in-law, Feeling Lewis, went up into the Alleghenies where both her son Samuel and her son um, uh, Charles had, had homes in what is now actually, I think, West Virginia. While she was there, her son Samuel and her son-in-law, Feeling, both died within three weeks of each other. Betty grew alarmingly sick with worry and sadness. Fielding and Betty had been Mary's mainstays for the seven years of the war. And now Fielding was suddenly gone. And Betty, widowed, surrounded by enormous debts that the Continental Congress owed her and her husband, was terribly ill. Mary was beside herself and spoke very often of her worries, her debts, her taxes, her fears. She spoke to whomever would listen. Meanwhile, a friend of George's in the Virginia legislature alerted him that there was talk of getting a pension for Mary. He thought George might be unhappy to hear this talk, and George was. He was angry and humiliated. Terribly worried for his reputation, George wrote several almost identical letters to friends and family saying he didn't know Mary's circumstances, but she could not be in want because her whole family was looking after her. George couldn't believe she was in financial difficulty even though he returned to terrible losses at Mount Vernon himself and often talked about being ruined. He expressed shock at the degree of indebtedness of his brothers. Except for Betty and Fielding, of course, the family had not looked after Mary. George's biographers have almost uniformly accused him, accused her of embarrassing him by petitioning for a pension, although there exists no such petition. And of course, the pension never happened. Mary was old and repeated herself. That was my dog. I hope you heard that wrestling. Mary was old and repeated herself, frightened of seeing her family dying off, frightened after many years of war and chaos, and, her, and frightened of losing her last bit of land and with it the independence that had meant so much to her all her life. There's evidence to suggest that the talk of the petition was started by a longtime enemy of George's who lived right in the region that Mary was visiting and was acquainted with uh, her sons, with, with Samuel, with, with all of the people that she would have been talking to. Mary died of breast cancer in 1789 during the first year of her, her son's presidency. The inventory at the end of Mary's life was strikingly like that of her mother's almost 70 years before. Farm animals and tools, useful worn objects, the best of which she called the best in her will and designated them for George, of course, of which he had little need. In the end, Mary and her son were very similar, physically strong, exigent, demanding people, frugal, willful, 
extraordinarily persistent in pursuing their goals, both mother and son were cut from similar durable cloth. They were enthusiastic and creative gardeners. They were brilliant on horseback, both of them. They were both philosophically committed to their ideas of duty and willing to confront any difficulties in carrying them out. The qualities which enabled her son to raise an army and outlast the British through a grueling war were the same kinds of qualities that allowed Mary to run a used up farm and successfully raise five children on her own. Those qualities in their world and still in ours look better and receive more praise on a man than a woman. George Washington and his generation of men fought a long war for independence. He could not recognize that his mother desired on her terms more or less the same thing. Thank you. We'd love to take some questions. All right, great. Thank you so much. That was really interesting. I will say that um, she's not a figure I really knew much about uh, going into this. So I feel like there's a lot there um, and I'm excited to read your book and read all of it. Um, I'm now going to turn it over to Allie who is going to run our Q&A segment. If you haven't submitted your question, you can go ahead and submit that to the Q&A box you'll find on your Zoom screen. Great, thank you so much, Martha. That was fascinating. Thank you, Abby. Uh, I could I could listen to you talk for hours. Um, that <laughs> was so wonderful. Um, so I have several really good questions. Um, the first one is, why do you think Augustine left Mary so little? Was it a common practice for men to leave their wives very little, or was he just not nice? I, I don't think it was a question of being nice. I think he had what he saw as limited resources and a very clear hierarchy in his head about who should get what, uh, his, his own first sons first. And I, th I, think, I think he had a perfectly functional and not a bad relationship with Mary, but he loved his first wife, it's quite clear. And I don't think he had a romantic, I don't think his attachment to Mary, I think was not, not a romantic one particularly. Um, beyond that, I can't say, I think it's, uh, I think if he had perhaps cared a little more about Mary, he would not have been, so, it, it was a relatively punitive will, um, and, and a distrustful one. Um, he obviously made the assumption that she would want to remarry and that would put his second family at risk. And, um, so he was protecting against that, knowing what had happened in his own in his own uh, childhood. But there must have been some I, I, it, things aren't done without utterly without feeling, and I think there are probably some feelings attached to it too. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Um, this next question is: how, Obviously, we could assume that Mary struggled with widowhood having to manage the house, raise children, and operate with such limited finances. How do you think the way she grew up and all the hardships she was accustomed to kind of influenced her method of survival? Oh, I think it prepared it, uh, prepared the way for her perfectly. I think she was, I think that the thing that she wasn't used to was ramping up, um, sort, sort of, when she married Augustine, she, uh, had to sort of step into another, I wouldn't fully call it a class, but she, she had to step up her game in terms of living in a more theatrical, sort of a more um, 
a way in which you show, it's a showier way so that the presentation of your life has to be okay. It's not, you're just not living on a farm with your kids and they can get dirty and that's okay and whatever. You are also presenting, you know, uh, an elegant life. And that, that was uh, the kind of man she married and the amount, sort of the, the amount of status he had above hers. So she had to learn a new, uh, a new way of being that was not totally comfortable for her. And it's possible that she didn't like it and didn't do it very well. It, people have criticized her as not dressing up enough. What she did do was to hang on to the older habits of dressing, which were more comfortable, but were still perfectly decent. Um, she didn't ever do what Martha and her daughter Betty did and, you know, wear the fancy gowns and, and, uh, and dress up as if she were um, showing herself in society. That was not, uh, so I think in many ways, she understood putting her children into society and could do that. Um, but I think for herself, she wasn't at all interested. Uh, it, that had never been part of her identity. And so um, it was quite, I wouldn't say it was easy for her to struggle, but uh, she, she didn't want to consume the way her kids did. It just didn't, you know, didn't, she didn't need a coach. She didn't need a, all the things that were driving them into death. Do you think that's know, just a generational difference? Well, it's partly a generational difference, but it's also because her mother was an indentured servant. Her mother was not uh, uh, from the leisured class. Mary had had no leisure in her life. She hit the ground uh, running her sister's family. I mean, she, she really um, didn't... Uh, it didn't, ex didn't expect to perform her life as an elegant... Um, uh, you know, as you know, as something elegant, she expected to do hard work because that's how she'd done it all along. And I think she was most comfortable doing that. I don't know if that answers your question entirely. Yeah, but. yeah, no, that definitely did. Um, in her lifetime, um, how was she viewed as kind of an outcast of, of society, a bit of an anomaly? Obviously, historians. Uh, biographers often present her in a negative light, but were there strong feelings about that in society towards her? I think she, I think she was probably seen as slightly eccentric. Um, she got a lot of, a lot of respect when, I mean, people thought she was just kind of an amazing old lady is, is the impression I get from a couple of uh, things that she was, she spoke her mind, you know, she didn't mince words. She was vigorous and upright and went out to the fields every day in her black straw hat. And, and, and I think she cut a, a rather odd figure for an older woman. Um, and I, I think she, I'm certainly not outcast at all. No, she, I mean, she was a church going, completely respectable person who was the mother of the father of the country after a while. I mean, that was, you know, no small thing. But, um, and Betty, was a pillar of Fredericksburg, Betty and, and Fielding. So, so she was right at the center of, of uh, the town and she knew everybody, but she was not, um, she was a little eccentric. Yeah. 
interesting how the over the years the perception of her has shifted from eccentric to oftentimes incredibly negative. I, I think that's a, a really a, a problem that we should deal with in some. It's a there's a his, the history of the historiography of, of Mary Ball Washington is is gets most virulent in the 1950s, um, and it it really tracks with growth of misogyny in this country. And since there's so little, people have, nobody's really bothered to find out much about her or to think about family history because the family does have a history, I, you know, different, different ways of being within the family are linked to historical periods. But for a lot of male historians in particular, there's just one kind of mother and she just adores her son and polishes his boots and that's, all you ever hear from her. And if she doesn't do that, you know, um, she's an obstacle in his, you know, I, it, it's, a, it's a problem uh, with the imagination of uh, historians who, who haven't really done the work to, to, to see how women's roles change. And it's much easier just to judge her as the, I don't know, creepy old person than, than uh, to think to think about why she behaved in a certain way. And that is why your work is so important. <laughs> Unraveling everything that's been perpetuated over the years. Um, so this question we've gotten from a couple different people. What was Mary's relationship with Martha Washington like? And Martha's children as well. Right. Um, it's, it's a little bit of a vexed question and I, I'm not sure there's a very good answer at, at Mount Vernon. I think that they think that it was quite a bad relationship. Um, she, never, she never went to Mount Vernon. Uh, they visited her sometimes. George was more, more often the one who visited but Martha visited her as well. Um, they were cordial. Uh, I don't think they, uh, she, she always, Mary always signed her letters um, you know, very lovingly to, to Martha, but I think there was a, there was a big class difference in, 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 in one sense. And they didn't really, I mean, Mary didn't have small talk. She couldn't fit into their life very well because she didn't go into the parlor and sit down and with the other folks chat and make small talk. She, uh, would be working on something or she would say what she had to say and it would probably not be, um, it, it might be a little edgy or whatever. Um, but she, they, they were, had very, very different upbringings and very different ideas about, you know, um, how to behave. Uh, I believe Martha probably, um, I think it was convenient for, for George in some ways to, uh, I mean, Martha was so different from Mary in the sense, particularly this consumption question and so on. I think it was easy for George to kind of take Martha's side and a little bit distance them from his mother um, because that, that wasn't a relationship that was, you know, more than, more than a formality. Um, she did get along with some of, of the, uh, of the young, younger Washingtons, but it was mostly the, the, the kids on her side of the family that were, you know, um, her favorites. 
So they were not having family dinners every week. <laughs> they did not. They did not. Um, I think it, 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 this is this remains to be. I don't know if we'll ever find out, but at the end of uh, uh, toward the end of Martha's life, she burned so many letters, as we know, George's their personal letters and so on and so on. There are, I would suspect in that conflagration, I'll bet you there were lots and lots and lots of letters from Mary as well that just went up in smoke um, because they would have had to do with haggling, maybe with money, maybe with little family things or whatever. Um, I can imagine Martha just wanting that out of her, out of the records. So I think there's much we won't know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what was uh, Mary's stance? Was she in favor of the revolution? Uh, that's a really good question. She was in favor of her family. I mean, she, um, they were making the revolution. I don't think she thought it was such a great idea. I don't think she thought um, disestablishing the church was a terrific idea. I don't know how happy she was about that. Um, but that she, you know, when Dunmore issued his proclamation, um, you know, that essentially would have set slave, enslaved people on their slave owners. And there's no way she could have, there's no way she could have embraced the British side. It was, it was, uh, the stakes were far too high and her son was running, <laughs> you know, was running the war. Also, I mean, to give them credit, Betty and Fielding were running the war from Fredericksburg. Fielding in particular with the arms, the arms manufacturer, he was on the committee, you know, all of the committees and, and um, vigilance committees and so on and so on. And, uh, so she was very close to the action that she, that she liked military activity as a way to solve problems. No, not at all. So she hated war, but I think you have to take that separate from, but she was not a Tory. She couldn't have been. Yeah, didn't, wasn't really, probably wasn't room for it. <laughs> uh, just given her situation and everything. Um, speaking of Fielding, what was uh, Mary's relationship like with him? I think it was extremely affectionate. Um, she, uh, she got on very, very well, as I said, with with Johnny, her fourth son, and with Fielding. When uh, Betty was the first to marry and she married Fielding, I think she was 15 and uh, uh, Fielding was a, a, a known quantity, a merchant uh, family that they knew, they knew well, already had a, he was a widower, already had a child or two, I can't, I think two. And so Betty was doing almost exactly what Mary had done when she married Augustine, but Fielding, um, and, and Betty had a very, very close relationship. I mean, some, they, they had a business partnership too. I remember reading someplace that their barrels, the shipping barrels had both of their initials on them from their, from their company. Um, and, uh, you know, they were, they were very, very close. Um, and Mary really relied on fielding for, uh, for everything. I mean, he, he was, you know, it's, it's, it's weird that George always talks about how the whole family was taken care of her really fielding took care of her and Betty and Betty too, of course. Was uh, fielding, was that um, an early source or 
um, injection of wealth into the Washington family or I guess a sense of stability? Um, no, Fielding made his money over time. Uh, he was a successful merchant. Uh, he didn't start out with an enormous amount of money, but I, in the 1740s and 50s, his father, I think, it, had been a merchant. Um, they they weren't really wealthy, you know. They weren't at the at the top. M Martha Washington was at, at sort of the top of the social ladder in terms of wealth, and as I said, she was the richest widow in Virginia, one of the richest made George one of the richest people in Virginia. Um, and the the feelings, although they were very very comfortable and had had plenty for a while until the revolution ruined them. Um, the Fieldings competed with the Washingtons for certain amenities, um, but they didn't have that kind of money. Great. Um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought entirely. <laughs> this happens. My dog is, is yelling at me, so I'm about to lose mine too. Um, what was I going to say? I'm going to pick a different question because I don't remember which one I was about to ask. Um, how did George describe his mother in his writings? He was always very respectful. Um, he, uh, not, I mean, sometimes he would, he would complain about her. I, I can't remember the word. He used at some point, mother nicking me for five pounds or something like that. That's about as, as, as bad as it, as it gets. He does. In some of his letters to her, he's he's trying to make her listen to. It's interesting. It's he's trying to make her listen to. This is this is when he wants her to give up her striving to be always growing things and always you know trying to be independent and so on. He he wants her to achieve a kind of a philosophical tranquility that she's, she was trying to get him to achieve too with the same book 30, 40, 50 years before. I mean, he, he quotes back to her from Matthew Hale, a book by Matthew Hale, which she had used very much as her sort of source of how to educate her children. So, so it's a wonderful sort of um, circle that by the end of her life, he's giving her back the lessons that she, um, you know, these lessons of resignation, these lessons of uh, letting go of, you know, um, uh, your expectations and, and, and trying to, um, uh, trying to resign yourself to life as it is. How do you think George's opinion of his mother changed after he married Martha? I suspect it worsened a bit. Um, I, th I think uh, I, I think he really loved Martha, uh, came to love Martha. And I think some of the ways he, he enjoyed her company were uh, rather different from uh, things that he'd enjoyed with his mother. I think he thought uh, Martha was, when she was well and, and happy and so on, I think she was a rather soothing person and a, and a supportive person. And I think Mary was a, a more of a, this is the project, you know, this mm -hmm. is 
this is what we're this is what we're going to do now. Um, and don't rest on your laurels. And none of this means anything anyway, because you know it's only what you. Uh, so I think in many ways, Martha was a lot more comfortable to live with uh, than than Mary had had been. On the other hand, when George really really uh, sort of looks back and summarizes, this happens two or three times in his life, he clearly had enormous respect for this woman. I mean, he just thought she was quite remarkable. Um, and so it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, she was very, very remarkable and not as warm and cuddly as Martha. This question just came in, and I think it's a good follow-up here. Is the story true that George Washington didn't buy Mary Washington a tombstone after she passed? No, I, I don't know anything about, um, I mean, she she wanted to be buried. It's not that he didn't buy it. I think she, she wished to be buried out by um, the rock that she'd always gone to to read with, uh, it, it was a, a special place that was on uh, Betty and uh, Fielding's land, and she she went there, and she often went there to read, be by herself. Sometimes she went to be with the grandchildren, read to them. I don't think she wanted a tombstone. I don't think that was ever. A, um, I may somebody may know something I don't know, but I I don't. George didn't neglect any. You know any ritual or anything he should have done for her. I think, I think they all abided by her wishes pretty much. Great. Um, this is a great question. Um, with the papers of Martha Washington, um, which is listed to be published in 2022, and the Washington family papers set to be published in the future, what do you hope we can discover about Mary Washington from these publications? I have no idea really what could be there, but um, uh, anything would be, you know, because because she so she left, or what was left after, you know, somehow either there was a lot of stuff and it all went away, or there wasn't much stuff. But we have so little; we have no diary, we have no, you know, I think a handful of letters, um, and anything we could learn more about that relationship, for example, the relationship between, between Martha and Mary, I think needs much fleshing out. I don't think it's anywhere. I don't think it's just hostility or just they rubbed each other the wrong way. It's, it's, they were, these were complex people and they were much too um, interesting to be, you know, sort of cartooned off like that. Um, but I'm sure, there must have been enormous that the, the family all did business with one another so there you know there must have been a lot going on and it would be wonderful to find out more about it yes i will say with what limited information there was um you've given a fantastic uh presentation i've learned so much um Good. Good. it's been absolutely wonderful this is going to be my last question um yeah. arguably the most important if you could dine with anyone at Francis Tavern, um, past or present, who would it be? Goodness. Um, it doesn't have to be Mary Washington. <laughs> that's a really a, uh, 
it's, it's too much freedom. I, I can't, <laughs> can't even, uh, Frederick Douglass. Ooh, I like it. I like it. That's a good one. That would be really great. Right. On that note, uh, thank you, Martha, for the wonderful presentation and for answering all of our questions. Thank you, Allie, for wonderfully going through all of those questions and asking some of your own. And thank you to everyone watching or joining us for another evening lecture with Francis Tavern Museum. If you enjoyed tonight's lecture and would like to stay up to date on all of our programs, you can go over to our website. I will drop the link in the chat right now. And there you'll be able to find our calendar of events, as well as the way to join our mailing list or follow us on social media. Our evening lecture series is finished for the year. We'll be picking back up again in January, but we do have some great things coming up in December, including if you are in the museums area, we are celebrating Washington's farewell this Saturday, December 4th, with a reenactment of the farewell, which happened at the museum. And we do recommend you reserve those spaces in advance because they are very um, limited attendees per each showtime. Thank you to those of you who have donated to the museum. Your generous support helps us to fill our mission and share the history of the American Revolutionary Era with the public. If you would like to make a donation, you can also do that on our website. So thank you again for joining us for another Francis Tavern Museum lecture, and we hope to see you both virtually and in person very soon. Good night, Sarah and Allie. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, all right. Good night, everyone. <laughs>